0: You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. Up ahead this hour, it's Island Adventures, DigiTaiwan, Climate Crunch, The Download, and Taiwan Today. Don't go away.
1: Beautiful island with so much to offer. So let's go explore it. Come check out Taiwan's must-see spots with me, Emma Banak, on Island Adventures. Alright, welcome back. For this week, I'm going to be interviewing a guest that I've had on here before, but he's just had so many different island adventures that uh, I keep wanting to ask him about it. (laughs) So here again this week, we have Harrison Kay.
2: Hello, thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah, of course. Well, when you told me where you had gone recently this past week, uh, the week before, I was very curious because this place is really strongly connected to uh, a really important holiday in Taiwan and it just passed uh, and that's the Lantern Festival so so where exactly did you go to celebrate the Lantern Festival?
2: so I actually went over to Pingxi which is in New Taipei City just um, like an hour bus ride away from uh, Beijing Zoo it was an hour bus ride away from Taipei Zoo uh-huh. um, so I went there to like the big square to um, celebrate the Lantern Festival which was very exciting
1: Ooh. Nice. So what made you really want to go there? I mean, I know it's something that I've heard about before. Um, I mean, I had been living in the south in Tainan for the past three years, so it was never something that was as convenient as just getting on a bus to get there. But a lot of people hear about the Lantern Festival, but haven't actually made the trip out to Pingxi. Do you Mm -hmm. think it's worth it to go there?
2: Oh, definitely. So um, I was very surprised at how convenient it was to get there. I was really worried that, you know, all the buses would be would be crazy full and that would be really expensive to get there but it was there were buses like shuttle buses going all the time from Taipei Zoo um I'd really recommend going if you're in the kind of north of Taiwan I had friends who came from kind of like uh Taichung and things and even yeah yeah yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah so um people seem to come from like all around Taiwan I know that like before the pandemic as well people come from other countries as well um it's quite a quite a big event in Pingxi at sea mm-hmm. and so I, was very, <laughs> I felt very um, blessed to get the opportunity to go there
1: yeah for sure so you get off the bus you're in Pingxi what what's the first thing that you do
2: uh, so I actually uh, went on down to Pingxi old streets mm-hmm. um, to get some food and that was really interesting because it was like The old street was kind of along a train track, and you could walk along a train track and like cross over and get different snacks, different foods. I got some of those. I'm not sure what they're called, but they're the the ice cream rolls with peanuts and the coriander and like like a pancake, um, which are a a favorite of mine. And so I just you know got off and got some food, and then headed over to the main square at about five o'clock.
1: Oh, perfect! So you timed it really nicely. Mm-hmm. It'd be terrible if you got there late at night and like all the lanterns <laughs> were already gone. It's like, oh my god, I'll have to wait a whole other year mm-hmm. for this to come again. Yeah.
2: Well, luckily there's eight, there was actually eight different rounds of lantern releasing there. Oh, okay. So it started at six. I think it went to about eight thirty, and so I went along, not even expecting to be able to release a lantern. I thought I'd just see some lanterns being released, but um, at the kind of entrance, they were had sign up for di- um at the entrance they had different slots that you could sign up for so i went along you know i thought again i'd have to pay some money or something and they went no it's absolutely free so i signed up with my friends about an hour and a half later um after we'd watched a few different lanterns being released it was mm-hmm. it was our turn to release some lanterns
1: so you had to buy a lantern though right
2: no no not at you all
1: you didn't even have to pay for a no, lantern
2: no no so you can obviously on like the old street or in mm-hmm. the area buy lanterns release them yourself whenever you want to um, but if you go to the main square there, uh which is actually in Sheffun, not in kind of like central Pink Chi itself, it was in Shiffen, um like a town next to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can actually release uh, lanterns for free. They they gave us lanterns. Uh it was gonna be one between two, but actually when I got there I had my own lantern and there were helpers there showing you what to do, and it was all—it was all very well organized and everything. I was Ooh, nice! Very surprised. Like a well-oiled
1: <laughs> oiled machine, exactly. The
2: Hengshui <laughs> lantern festival.
1: Yeah, so I think it's tradition to write some sort of wishes on the side of the lantern mm. before you send it up. Is that what you did?
2: Yes. Oh my gosh! So I hadn't quite given enough thought to what I <laughs> wanted to write on the lantern, mm-hmm. and um, it was all very well organized. But that meant everything was very well timed as well. So somebody gave me a lantern, and then the. the um, the person that was helping said, "Okay, you have you now need to write on the lantern." So I was there writing a few messages slowly, like um, some different like Chinese idioms, like you know. Oh wow, like you put some you know, there. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, good health and mm-hmm. prosperity and things like that. And then she was saying to me, "I oh, need to write on all sides quickly." There was like four different sides of the lantern, obviously, and she was like you know hurry up hurry up you can write Chinese or English and so I just started panicking <laughs> Any and language just, is okay. <laughs> I started panicking and just like sm- like scrolling all over it different yeah. things in English like um my friend's birthday that day so I was like happy I of happy birthday to him on it I just <laughs> wrote like love peace uh-huh. happiness some in English some in Chinese um good so vibes in, in hi- <laughs> exactly in hindsight I would probably given more thought to different things I would have put on it I didn't think I'd probably I actually put any of my genuine wishes on there i didn't really think beforehand <laughs> what i actually wanted out mm. of the, <laughs> the lantern wishes um but it was still it was still fun to write on it and watch watch all my wishes fly into the air so are all the
1: are all the lanterns red or are they a whole bunch of different colors
2: no so actually um they have different colors there during the lantern festival they each represent different things they have eight different waves of lantern releasing and they each have different they each represent different things my wave was orange and I can't quite remember the exact meaning of orange mm-hmm. but you know they there are different meanings like you know love and um prosperity and health and peace and all these different things
1: okay that's cool do, do you know if the waves went off in like rainbow order like the first wave was red then you were the second wave oh, or something oh
2: gosh there was not order I don't think it was rainbow order though mm-hmm. I remember thinking this wasn't rainbow order that was mm, it wasn't rainbow water because my one was I think orange and I think it was about the fifth wave.
1: Oh okay. I so see. um
2: it wasn't quite rainbow unfortunately.
1: And like how quickly were these waves going off after one another?
2: They're about every twenty minutes to half an hour because they would they had like kind of performances in between each wave. Oh. So There would be this host that would come out and talk and then go and interview people in the crowds, and then they would have different performances and then. Um, and the music would start playing, the lights would dim, and these the lanterns would all go off. And so, it mm-hmm. was, as I say, it was very well organized. There was kind of a lot going on, a lot of different things to see. Mm-hmm. And in between, obviously, you could go out and get food from the old streets, and so it was just a really nice atmosphere and yeah.
1: what's going on there. Were there any sort of lantern mishaps? Like, did any Ooh. of them seem to catch on fire and fall from the sky or something? Yeah,
2: so the first wave, um, the first one that I saw in the first wave that, um, <laughs> all the lanterns went up and then there was one that kind of got maybe like 15 meters into the sky and then started burning up and coming down Ooh. and I obviously was there panicking like oh my gosh we're all gonna die it's awful f- This like flaming ball that's falling out the ground but obviously they were, <laughs> they were very well prepared for that yeah, yeah. Um, they had people there with big sticks that kind of just like poked it into the <laughs> ground and it was raining so that helped as well oh. um, but
1: <laughs> how, how do the lanterns do with the rain I feel like if they get wet then mm. that's probably not too good either
2: yeah well this is the thing so the The lanterns were made out of plastic, Uh, uh um, which is a controversial, which is a controversial, which is a controversial issue Mm -hmm. um, because obviously not the best for the environment. Mm -hmm. um, But that means that obviously they weren't too affected by the rain.
1: Oh, I see. I know that you've. uh, I I don't know if it's coming up this week or if you did it last week on kind of the environmental issues Mm. of lantern festival so i want to save some of that info for your uh your program but i'm just curious because i've heard about lanterns that are made to be biodegradable did you see anyone Mm. else bringing these sort of lanterns to it or was that not really a thing
2: no it wasn't really a thing at all unfortunately i before i went i kind of assumed or thought that the lanterns that you know the official lantern festival ones would be kind of made out of bamboo or something i didn't think they would still be plastic Mm -hmm. um but actually the all the kind of official inverted commas lanterns were all plastic ones and i didn't see anybody like on the old street or like in the area using like uh, paper or bamboo ones. Um, mm-hmm. So that's definitely something that's still not quite changed yet, um, mm. at least in Pingxi, maybe um, in the rest of Taiwan uh, perhaps, but definitely not in Pingxi, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. Did you see any other sort of lantern related, lantern festival related events uh, throughout the past few weeks? I feel like there's been a, b- a bunch mm. that I've heard about, but they have kind of been spread throughout Taiwan. So yeah. I don't think I've made it to a single one. And I feel like all the ones I'm reading about, they're like goes until February twenty eighth. Mm. I'm like, oh, geez, that's <laughs> that's, that's a silly. quickly approaching date. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So there's the that's the one in Taipei as well. There's the Taipei kind of lantern festival, which. Um, I think it's in uh Sherlin, so it's kind of in oh, yeah. the north mm-hmm. of Taipei. Um and that's like seems to have like lots of different animatronics and things it seems to be more kind of like modern lantern festival. So they have different kind of like I think fireworks as well each night. I've not actually been but I've had friends who've gone. Mm-hmm. Um and they have like laser shows and light shows. Um so that's definitely something that's piqued my interest.
1: Yeah, I mean I I doubt that you'll have time to go down there before it ends, but uh, since I was living in Tainan for the past three years, there's a lot of, I mean, I don't know how many when I say a lot, but it, there's just a really big lantern festival down mm. there as well. Um, and it's in this place called Yenshui, which is mm. also known for having this sort of, what is it called? It's like a beehive, oh, like fireworks sort of festivals. Yes. They have that, but then they also have this, lantern festival which is just all these different art uh installations i think this year they had almost a hundred different art installations spread out throughout about five different exhibit areas and one of these even includes this sort of virtual um aquarium where Mm -hmm. you get to draw your own sea creature and then um you scan it and it comes to life and they like play these different light creatures over the sides like it's Mm. it's an aquarium but it's just made out of light and people's own virtual creation. So I thought that was kind of a cool idea as well.
2: Yeah, definitely. I've never seen anything like that, but it sounds like it'd be very interesting, definitely.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well anyway, thank you so much for sharing about your trip to Pingxi to be a part of the lantern festival. I'm hoping that one year I can do it as well and also hoping that maybe in the future when I go there'll be more of a transition to more biodegradable, less plastic in terms Mm -hmm. of the lanterns. I still think it's a beautiful festival and uh, when I say that, you know, maybe there needs to be some changes, I, I really don't want them to phase it out at no, all. No, but at all. I think that, you know, with today's technology, there is a way to kind of find some sort of middle ground. All right. Well, thanks again so much for coming on the show, Harrison. Always great to have you.
2: Thank you for having me. All
1: right. So that's it for this episode. Tune in again next week to hear about uh, mine or maybe someone else's next island adventures. Bye. Bye.
0: DigiTaiwan, digital art and entertainment in Taiwan. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of DigiTaiwan, creatively titled, The One About Electronic Music in Taiwan. Earlier this week I had the pleasure of speaking to Lars Berry, a longtime resident of Taipei who is the force behind Future Proof, an independent record label featuring electronic music artists from Taiwan. Today we will find out how he got started in promoting music and why his label engages in musical archaeology. Don't go away! Taiwan is often called technology island because of how developed the high-tech industry is here chances are that crucial components in the device on which you are listening to me right now were made here you would think that with this abundance of modern electronics Taiwan would have a strong electronic music scene well it turns out that it is growing and developing but that wasn't always the case Let's go meet Lars and hear what he had to say on that topic. Lars, could you introduce yourself and tell us what you do in Taiwan?
3: Sure. Um, so my name's Lars Berry. I am a, predominantly a, a teacher by trade, as a form of you know, as a as a full time job, and that's been for many years. But ha- having been here for a number of years, it's getting on to now what 17 years I've been here 17 18 years you know in that in that amount of time a person has you know a lot of opportunity to go through you know many changes in life and you know and living here and being a teacher is is fine but there's a lot of other you know there's a lot of other opportunity here beyond a job obviously having you know have having always been sort of in some way involved in music throughout my life. Um, There was no difference in when I moved here and, you know, slowly becoming part of the music scene in Taipei and that evolved into multiple different music projects for my, you know, in terms of my own interests and like bands and solo projects. Eventually it turned into more like a organizing position like I was interested in organizing events where I could invite artists to play at the event that I felt were not getting out there and not having a chance to play cuz maybe they didn't have a they weren't really represented in the larger music scene which was kind of 12, 13, 14 years ago It was more dominated by you know just kinda like I always say band-oriented music scene rock I guess And electronic music was represented by more like you know nightclubs and DJs but there was not much going on for people who made electronic music that was more on the outlying side of things. What do you mean outlying side? Well I guess I mean when people describe electronic music from a consumer point of view I guess uh, you know they're interested in certain genres like you know this person might be might say that oh i really like techno music or you know i really like house music or i really like going to raves and listening to rave music but these are all like huge massive like meaningless almost uh genres
0: almost industries
3: yeah they're like industries and they don't like they don't really represent most people who make music electronically Ironically enough, even though they're so huge in terms of their influence and uh, um, you know what they represent, and when you're inside of a, a music scene and you you're just seeing it from the point of view of a of a guy just like going to events and picking up on what's going on, you know, you start to see that you know, most people who are making things are not aiming toward a certain genre, and what ends up happening is you just get this whole like Pretty amazing breadth of just weird and you know wonderful stuff happening so so anyway I I just because I liked going to shows eventually I just started to see that there was a lot of people that I would meet that they like oh yeah I make music but I, I never play live because nobody ever invites me and I don't know how to you know put myself out there so the brand or the record label which is what it is now Future Proof first came about, I don't know, seven, seven, eight years ago. I don't know exactly how long ago as just a, an event to have at various locations around the city and invite each event, I don't know, four or five different either individuals or groups to perform.
0: How, how big is the electronic music scene in Taipei or Taiwan in general right now? You said that 13 14 years ago when you first came here it was not very big and then 7 8 years ago you you started um pr- promoting uh, electronic music mm-hmm. uh, has that made a difference uh, is it is it getting more popular
3: well i mean i would like to s- i would like to say that yes i've made a difference but i mean um i guess that remains to be seen history will judge me <laughs> but um but really uh From my perspective, yes, from my perspective, um, like I said, like 10, 12 years ago, there was this huge inflow of uh, Japanese-oriented rock, and I'm going to say rock, and it's very loosely, I say that, because it was like, the stuff that I saw coming from Japan was very experimental and very focused around uh, expression and um, and, uh, performance like almost like performance art, but with instruments. So, but anyway, yeah, at that time it was more like, you know, drummer, guitarist, bass, singer, you know, something that you might call like punk rock or post rock or this kind of thing. And there wasn't that much of tension on electronics. It was more like there's like somebody doing electronics in the band as like a, as in a guy with a a sampler who is, you know, playing it like an instrument within the context of the band um, or somebody playing a synthesizer or, you know, just kind of traditional sort of electronic section in a band. Almost every band from the 1970s onward has had a period of time, at least where they have an entire section, which is electronic, but the electronic section of a band is usually more like background and it sort of takes on a more like the role of creating like the, sort of vibe in the background, more, less the center of the arrangement. Um, but I would say 10 years ago, people started to be more like, oh, well, I just want to play a synthesizer as the centerpiece and not have guitars and drums to, to battle with, you know, to get the sound out, because electronic, electronic instruments of which there are, you know, hundreds and thousands of Mm -hmm. different ones. When I say that, it's just like it's a huge, massive industry. But, you know, they can make any sound. There's no sound that an electronic instrument can't make. So when you start getting into that, it's this whole world of um, sound, which is, like, kind of daunting. So anyway, to go back to what you were asking me, yeah, I would say that now band-centered music has taken... Uh, like a much sort of less influential role and I would say electronic music from my perspective electronic music is much more dominating now that's good news um. well it, it is in a sense but like yeah maybe well, let's see it's, I mean and when I say that I mean I guess I mean you can go to a club now and hear DJs playing what 10 years ago would not have been played in a club like quite experimental you know, a lot more difficult to dance to than, than more traditional genres of electronic music.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Well, I, I remember growing up when I was in high school, uh, electronic music was sort of in my mind and in mind of my friends divided into two categories. The kind that you can dance to was called EDM, and the type that you couldn't dance to was ele- the rest, the electronica, you know, very widely understood.
3: Yeah, for sure, yeah. I mean, EDM is... It's just like an acronym that i I hear and I don't even act I actually really don't know what it means really because i this sounds funny but i've never actually I've never been to like a huge electronic music festival before like i've I've never gone to one of those parties I know that they exist and lots of people go to them but I've never been to one so
0: there's something else <laughs> <want to say>. <laughs> it's a <laughs> different I'm experience sure. than uh, the kind of electronic music concerts that, that you put on. Y-
3: yeah, for sure. Um, but there's always crossover, and I think there's probably a lot more crossover than I w- would realize.
0: So uh, your label, Future Proof, yeah. uh, on your Bandcamp uh, page that yeah. you have there, there is a description that says, uh, Archaeological Electronic Island Music. Archaeological is that uh, what is the is is there a meaning to that uh, or or is it just yeah, something well, to draw I'm, attention?
3: I mean, I can't take uh, I can't take credit for the these these descriptive words mm-hmm. because actually that was a, a close friend of mine who was the one of the initial people to encourage me to take the event that Future Proof organized and uh, change it into a record label so he he and i talked a lot about this for over a period of time for, uh maybe like 5 years ago and he has a record label in the UK called quantum natives um those are kind of like his words or at least words that we came up with in our you know discussions archaeological yeah because our our initial sort of a fascination with taiwan's electronic music scene was because it was just so weird And we saw it as a extension of the city's sort of weird sort of exposed wires coming out of buildings, Um, just all kinds of old sort of outdated technology mixed with cutting edge technology, you know, obsession with technology here, obviously, but yet this sort of weird sort of. Moldy, sort of decaying under structure of all the the old buildings, and just this sort of, I say, sort of romanticizing the decay of Taipei through sound, in a sort of sense. And I think we talked about that a lot. And I think he was really, f- and still is really fascinated by this idea. And I also believe that geography and, um, you know, location influences the artistic output of that, you know, that area you know including of course in music Mm -hmm. Um, so archaeological I just mean I think it's like a it's sort of like the idea of unearthing treasures that are sort of hidden within the community because as I said a lot of people don't get out there and put their um, put their uh, foot forward and try to you know get ears on their on their songs or on their sounds So Future Proof kind of would act as a, uh, really just a platform and just like a loudspeaker, just a megaphone, really. It's just like, because I'm not a producer, I'm not actually producing people's music, as in, I'm not an engineer. So the only role that I could really say that I have is to be quite humble, actually, and just to be like, what I can do for you as an artist is just hopefully get people in, I don't know, you know, Sweden or Germany or in chile or argentina to hear your your music and just to get a few ears from other countries onto what you know you're doing so in that sense it's yeah it's i guess it's more like uh like documentation and collecting in a certain sense sadly this is almost
0: all the time we have for this episode next week i'll be bringing you part two of my interview with lars berry as well as talk about an upcoming electronic music concert in a taipei venue called final That's happening on Thursday, March 17th, so if you are in or around Taipei and you would like to hear some interesting music, come on down. We'll have the lineup and more details for you next week, but save the date for now. Instead of playing my usual outro music, I thought I would showcase some of Lars's, a song Proximity Departed by his solo project Color Domes. Check him out on Bandcamp and come back next week for more DigiTai1.
4: Everything environment, it's Climate Crunch with Harrison Kay.
2: Hello and welcome to Climate Crunch, Radio Taiwan International show covering everything related to climate and environmentalism here in Taiwan. I'm Harrison Kay, and for the next five minutes, I'll be bringing you the latest on what's been going on in Taiwan's natural world. This week, I'm going to be taking a look at Taiwan's acid rain problem. For the past few weeks, Taiwan has been experiencing a period of quite intense rainfall. As of Tuesday morning, 195.5mm of rain has been recorded in February, and it's close to exceeding the 198mm recorded in February 2014. After particularly dry summers for the past two years, some are welcoming this wet period, while many are waiting for sunnier days to return. However, Taiwan's rain is more than just a minor inconvenience, it's actually acidic. Most of Taiwan experiences acid rain at different points throughout the year. Taiwan's worst acid rain was found to be in the Zhongli district in Taoyuan, according to 2019 research at the National Central University. They collected rainwater samples from 14 weather stations, and found that the average pH value there was 4.66, which is a similar acidity to tomato juice. Any pH value below 5.0 is considered to be acidic. In general, the rain in northern Taiwan is more acidic than that in the centre, south and east. Acid rain forms when harmful chemicals such as sulphur dioxide and nitrogen oxides are emitted into the atmosphere. The chemical reactions that happen when they meet water, oxygen and other chemicals in the air form sulfuric and nitric acids. These then mix with rainwater and fall to the ground as acid rain. The so harmful chemicals that form acid rain can come from some natural sources such as rotting plants and volcanic eruptions. However, the vast majority of these chemicals in the atmosphere are products of man-made reactions. Burning fossil fuels not only releases greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide, but also releases these pollutants that form acid rain. The biggest sources of these pollutants are coal power plants, factories and vehicles. But, about half of Taiwan's acid rain is actually caused by pollution that comes from outside of Taiwan. In autumn and winter, weather fronts blow in from northern China. They pick up industrial emissions from across China and then come down to Taiwan. Despite this though, many of the pollutants that cause acid rain also come from the heavy industry, power plants and domestic appliances found in Taiwan. Motor vehicles in particular are a cause for concern in Taiwan. Taiwan has the highest density of motorcycles in the world, with around 14 million motorcycles for a population of 26 million people. Yet, it's estimated that only around 100,000 of these motorbikes are electric. And on top of that, in 2020 there were over 450,000 new car sales in Taiwan, which is the highest sales volume since 2006. Acid rain can have a wide range of effects on the environment. Besides eroding man-made things like buildings or statues, It can also affect the natural world. Acid rain is known to wash the protective film off of leaves which then stunts the growth of trees. It can also affect the composition of soil which makes it uninhabitable for plants and animals. When acid rain enters the body of water it can raise the acidity of the entire water source and can cause fish and other animals to die off. A lake with a pH below four is considered to be a dead lake and if that's not enough reason to be concerned Acid rain also irritates skin and can increase the severity of itchy, allergic reactions and inflammation. If severe enough, it can even lead to hair loss. In total, it's estimated that the yearly damage from acid rain on Taiwan's ecology, agriculture, architecture and human health costs around 10 billion new Taiwanese dollars. The acid rain situation is slowly improving as people realise the dangers and severity of the problem in Taiwan. The Environmental Protection Agency introduced air pollution prevention fees in 1995. It later lowered the limit on the sulfur content of diesel fuel and gasoline in 2011 and 2012 respectively. Yet the problem still remains, and will most likely not improve significantly without a great deal of international cooperation. China's heavy industry continues to pollute the atmosphere at alarming rates, and the effects of this continue to be felt in Taiwan. For the time being, it's probably best to just remember to bring an umbrella in the rain. That's all we have time for this week. Until next time, it's been Climate Crunch with me, Harrison Kay, for Radio Taiwan International.
1: For all your science and tech news, it's Stash Butler with The Download.
4: Welcome to The Download from Radio Taiwan International where we cover all the latest developments in science and technology. I'm your host, Dash Butler, and I'll be taking you through everything you need to know. Today I speak to John Fan, the co-founder of Taiwanese app giant PicCollage. John tells me what unites all his company's many mobile apps and how PicCollage goes about fostering innovation. All that coming up on The Download.
5: Hi, I'm John Fan. I'm the co-founder and CEO of uh, this company, uh, Picolodge. So I'm a Taiwanese American. Growing, I uh, grew up in the U.S. and I never thought that I would, you know, live in Taiwan or you know have a company here. So this has all sort of been a, sort of a mid-career switch to to come here and and basically live a, a new life. So that's been very interesting. Yeah. Basically, I was working in in the Bay Area for technology companies. Uh, the company that I was at happened to be acquired and uh, decided to leave and that was sort of when the app revolution had taken off. So that was the time when I was playing around with, you know, building apps, like, I guess, you know, a little bit before everyone started doing it, but yeah. (laughs) And uh, during that time, uh, spending some time in different places because, you know, it's just me and a friend working on apps and then uh, we ended up spending a lot of time here in Taiwan and then met some other friends and said, hey, let's build the company here. So it's sort of a, a gradual process, and and c- came here, and then uh, this is before uh, the PicCollage app w- was built. So, right. so we were trying out a whole bunch of different apps, and then we were very lucky to build PicCollage, and it, it took off.
4: Okay, uh, I mean, that's, I mean mm-hmm. that brings me on to our next qu- question, question mm-hmm. I guess, which is, um, well, yeah, what does Piccolage mm-hmm. do? I mean, so so you sure. you mm-hmm. have kind of there's the Piccolage company, and then there's your right your your app, Pick Collage. So
5: right, right. So the, as a company, we've been building lots of i would just say you know uh, creative apps that involve people so it's sort of a general thing so we've built a lot of different apps in the past and we're continuing to, to do so but i think uh you know the the main focus has been on you know making the world fun and creative so uh, picolodge itself the, our main app is a photo editing app primarily but it also you know, it creates videos and things like that so let's say you know, Mother's Day is coming up, right, and it's too late to send something physical or, or you want to, you know, show your, you know, your, your, your thanks, right, so you, mm. you find some some photos and you make a nice card, right, so it's better than something store-bought, uh, and, you know, it's something you can digitally create, and our, our app, you know, has lots of uh, stickers and lots of curated backgrounds and, and templates, and it helps you make something that's meaningful, and so, you know, our app is really popular around the holidays, you know, Christmas, mm. you know, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Valentine's Day, but all year round for, you know, not just for birthdays and things like that, but just for everyday occasions where, you know, you get together with some friends and you want to take the photos and you want to share them to social media in a way that's more than just, here's a, here's a, you know, a dump of my photos, right? Right, right, right? right. Or here's some, you know, videos. Instead, you can take it and make something interesting with it. And so sort of that act of creating something with it sort of you know, adds more meaning to the experience, mm. right? So that's what our main app is for: for making
4: cards, collages, uh, you know, stories, social media posts. And yeah, I mean, because then, you know, at, at this point, mm-hmm. I would normally kind of ask about mm-hmm. all your other products, but you, you know, you mm-hmm. have so many of them. You have mm-hmm. all these different apps and, and web products.
5: Right. Well, I think you know, PicCollage is our, our main app. Um, we have you know, over 250 million downloads. Um, you know, it's popular in in countries around uh, around the world. Um, for other apps, I think it. It's a bit more like um, these are our experimental new products. So, right. you know, we, we actually have uh, internal hackathons as well. So, we call it Innovation Festival. So, our InnoFest, we have every few months, and basically it's three days or a week, and everyone drops their existing work and just, you know, tries building something new. Um, and so, you know, some of our new products come out of that. And we are very much, you know, supportive of, you know, pushing them out to users and seeing how they do. So, some of them are, you know, just interesting technologies, interesting ideas. Others are strategic, meaning that, uh, for example, for the main Picolodge app, uh, we're expanding to letting people create animated cards or uh, to do video editing, right? Uh, also, uh, people have asked for having it on the web. Um, so all these things sort of are reflected in our new products as well. So we're simultaneously trying to build new things that mm. stand on them, stand by themselves, as well as taking Picolodge and bringing it to the next step, the mm. next level.
4: Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, cause like, mm-hmm. how do you decide, um, I suppose in another world, you might mm-hmm. have decided to kind of put all of these features into one kind of big app. Do you know right. what I mean? Yes. Well, yes. So what was the kind of the reasoning behind maybe kind of separating these things off into sort of separate products?
5: Right. So I think, you know, we we, we may do that, right? You know, depending on how they do it. I think, you know, and this is sort of getting into the weeds of uh, product development, but you know, once a product becomes popular, right? You know, the impact of pushing out a feature that has bugs, right? Or that's sort of a distraction from the main usage, you know, that, that's a concern that you might have when you have millions of people using each day, as opposed to, you know, a new app that doesn't have users yet. So you know, we often find that it's better to, to run it as an independent effort first. So we have, you know, a team of two or three people try it out and say, how, how would we, you know, build an app that focuses on this? and then they try it out and then they sort of work the kinks out and then the other you know the main team looks at it and says that's really interesting let's incorporate that right so that's sort of the the idea so you can kind of
4: get integrated into the main app possibly later yeah i mean and Mm -hmm. you know kind of having all of these different projects going on i mean it it must be kind of real you know you're kind of spinning lots of different plates at one time here aren't you yes Uh, how do you how do you manage that having Mm -hmm. kind of like all of these different products each presumably with their own Mm -hmm. kind of marketing needs and so on
5: right well you don't want to manage it too much right that, that sort of thing like we've tried uh, these d- different models for innovation and I think this is a problem that you know small companies and big companies have to think about how do you generate the environment for for innovation I think part of it is you know to some extent you have small groups of people, bring in the right people, you know, talented people who people who have an urge to create something, who want to work with other fun, creative people and you know, make something and, and then give them the space to do that. So we're we're trying to do that as opposed to sort of a top-down model that says innovate in this way. Like that model doesn't necessarily work that well. So we've set up, you know, the, this idea of like uh, cycles or so basically three week time boxes that, that where we say, you know, propose what you you know you want to do in these three weeks. And so they'll come up with a proposal and then we give them three weeks and then at the end of it they they come up with something. Right. right. So you sort of give them the, the window where it's not like here's how you have to run it. Because for Picklodge, the main app, when you have, you know, fifty people working on the same app, there's a lot of structure that's needed just to coordinate and communicate. But if you have three people trying something out, they come up propose something and then three weeks later they come back with something. And so that we found that that's sort of a nice model. But we also do try to create the opportunity for, you know, some feedback or some, you know, input from others. Uh, so every Friday, you know, we have demo time. Right. So uh, the teams optionally can do a quick demo, you know, a five minute demo of what they've been working on. And maybe a design intern looks at it and says, Oh, that's really interesting. What have you thought about this? And mm. that's the input that they need. So it's not so much top down. It's very much, you know, networks, right? Network yeah. teams of teams where they're just giving each other feedback input and, and sort of encouraging each other
4: is is that something that mm. you kind of did from the beginning or is it something you kind of you know stumbled into from kind of experimenting with different kind of styles of yeah management?
5: i mean we, we've we had to uh experiment and, <laughs> and, and
4: and try different models and
5: we're still trying so this is our latest you know our, our latest incarnation maybe you know six months from now <laughs> if you ask again well, like, well actually <laughs> we're trying this other approach right now we're a very traditional <laughs> top down yeah probably. there we go yes <laughs>
4: That was John Fan, the co-founder of PicCollage, Collage, telling me how his company is perfecting the art of fostering innovation. And that's all we have time for this week. Next week, John tells me what it's like running a Silicon Valley-style company in Taiwan's hierarchical business environment. That's next week with me, Stash Butler, on The Download.
3: On today with Natalie So.
6: Taiwan has been watching the Ukraine crisis closely, especially as Russia invaded Ukraine this week. Could Russia's aggression inspire China to attack Taiwan? Well, that's Taiwan's biggest fear. My guest today is Dan Blumenthal. He's a prominent Asia policy expert in Washington D.C. He's a senior fellow and the director of Asia Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, an important think tank in Washington, D.C. Blumenthal was also the senior director of China, Taiwan, and Mongolia at the Department of Defense. He is also the author of the book The China Nightmare, The Grand Ambitions of a Decaying State. He recently wrote an article in Foreign Policy called Beijing Could Run Russia's Playbook on Taiwan. Today, I speak with him about why he thinks so. But before we get into that, I ask him what the mood is in Washington, D.C. now that Russia has invaded Ukraine.
7: Well, it's shocking. Yeah, nobody nobody really thought that one big country would just go in and attack and invade and occupy another country, but it's happened, and so we're we're truly in a new era.
6: And what do you think is going to happen next?
7: I think the Russians will continue with their plans in the Ukraine, and uh, the U.S. and NATO are going to have to contain the threat on the eastern flank of NATO.
6: How do you think this will end?
7: Uh, unfortunately, I think it will end with Russia occupying Ukraine and, and the U.S. having to reinforce uh, containing that threat on the eastern flank to Poland and elsewhere.
6: And what is the biggest implication for Taiwan after that happens, if that happens?
7: Well, we're, we're in a new era where we have to be Take seriously the threat to Taiwan, very seriously the threat to Taiwan, that the United States and its allies have got to take seriously the fact that Xi Jinping and others in China are are serious when they say they will not accept the permanent separation in their view of Taiwan from, from China. So you know we need to redouble our efforts to deter, to show how costly it would be, and to defend Taiwan.
6: So you recently wrote an article about how Beijing could learn from Russia's playbook um, in terms of Ukraine. Can you tell us how you think the Ukraine crisis could affect Taiwan?
7: Yes, I think China has options to threaten mass uses of force and to coerce Taiwan, but more importantly, to intimidate the United States into thinking that Defending Taiwan would cause a very big and protracted war. And in so doing, they would try to make political demands of Washington to put pressure on Taipei to accept China's policy on Taiwan. So I think, I think China is watching very carefully to see how the United States and NATO respond to this aggression.
6: So how do you think the U.S. needs to respond to what's happening in Ukraine in order to deter China from becoming more aggressive towards Taiwan?
7: Well, I mean, there, there are many things that we haven't done right for many years, so it's a bit late, but I think uh, uh, sanctions, very crippling sanctions that, that punish the Russian economy badly, and uh, keeping the Allies uh, on board uh, with those sanctions, uh, as well as accelerated lethal aid to the Ukrainian military, the training of the Ukrainian military, the, the continued advisory troops inside the Ukraine, as well as reinforcing the flanks of NATO, which, all of which is happening, although the crippling economic sanctions are, are fairly slow to be rolled out.
6: Well, you know, in your article you mentioned that the U.S. should have a stronger military presence in Taiwan to deter China. Do you think that that will be happening with the Biden administration?
7: Well, I actually said it should train a small force to be ready to go into Taiwan at the first sign of a crisis which would just be the acceleration of existing programs that the United States already has. But my point was, if we're going to be able to influence events in a crisis and maintain Taiwan's political will, help shore it up, help shore up its ability to communicate, very importantly, as we see with the Ukraine crisis, communicate with its population, with the rest of the world, I think we're going to need to have people in Taiwan fairly quickly.
6: So what is the situation now? That's that's not possible right now?
7: Well, it's certainly possible. It's possible to train such a force and for it to practice and to get it in and outside of Taiwan. I mean, you know, it's it's not it's not a huge provocation or acceleration of of anything we're not already doing. I just think we need to focus very much on being more familiar with Taiwan military units and and uh, with Taiwan uh, critical infrastructure and communications and so on, it's possible to do that.
6: So your idea was to put a uh, U.S. force in Taiwan at the first sign of trouble, right? To help Taiwan with communications. Well, be communications ready.
7: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
6: Do you think the Biden administration would be willing to take your advice?
7: Uh, they may. I mean, particularly after after this in Ukraine. I mean, I think they're going to want to do everything they can to prepare for similar crisis in taiwan i think they're open to ideas of how to assure deterrence and and that we would succeed together with taiwan in a crisis
6: i'm speaking with dan blumenthal he is a prominent asia policy and defense expert in washington dc he's a senior fellow at the american enterprise institute he was also a senior director of china taiwan and mongolia at the u.s department of defense As the world's eyes are on Ukraine, Blumenthal recently wrote an article about how China could learn from Russia's playbook. Next, we talk about what the U.S. would do if China attacked Taiwan.
4: The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International.
1: Hi, I'm Leslie Liao. Do you love Radio Taiwan International's English content and wish it would never end? Well, who said it has to? The fun doesn't have to stop here. Check out our website, or our Facebook, or our YouTube, or our Twitter. Go to en.rti.org.tw for the latest Taiwan news stories. Check out Radio Taiwan International on Facebook to see great pictures of Taiwan. Go to youtube.com slash rtienglish to view some of our great features. And when you're done, tell us what you think on Twitter. Our handle is Taiwan underscore ENG. What are you waiting for? I'm here waiting for your message.
2: Listen, are you listening? <laughs>
6: You're listening to Taiwan Today, and I am Natalie So. People in Taiwan are very concerned about what's happening in Ukraine. Of course, they believe that every country and people should have the right to their own sovereignty and territorial integrity. But there's also been a lot of comparisons between Ukraine and Taiwan, especially as Russia and China grow closer in their alliance. Today, I speak with a top Asia policy expert in Washington, D.C., Dan Blumenthal, he is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also the author of The China Nightmare, The Grand Ambitions of a Decaying State. He believes China could be learning from Russia's playbook. Now, I ask him what he thinks the United States would do if China attacked Taiwan.
7: Well, I mean, the U.S. would likely first try to help with its defense and then come to its defense. But my point in my article is is that it's not going to be so easy to just come to Taiwan's defense. There's going to be uh, some kind of crisis, and it's going to take diplomacy, which will be much harder in the Taiwan case, I view it, and then in the Ukraine case. There's going to be immense needs for coordination between the United States and Taiwan and the United States and Taiwan and whatever coalition decides to join in. So I I argue in that article in Foreign Policy that we need to be doing things now to prepare for uh, not just a military crisis, but a diplomatic military crisis.
6: You also said that Taiwan doesn't have a NATO, and there's no real security guarantees for Taiwan. So what do you think other countries should be doing to help deter a Chinese attack on Taiwan?
7: Well, I mean, very few other countries are going to do anything unless the United States convinces them that it's necessary to do so. So uh, Japan, obviously, is changing its policy somewhat, and Japan has to. For the United States to succeed, Japan has to, at the very least, provide use of its bases. Uh, Hopefully it will do more than that in terms of uh, military commitments. Australia talks about the same sort of thing, but the United States needs to be much more proactive in building a, a coalition and explaining to this coalition why it's necessary to resist aggression in the Taiwan Strait.
6: Do you think that this Ukraine crisis could be a distraction from the U.S. protecting Taiwan?
7: Well, you know, there are people who say that, but the U.S. is a global power. I mean, it has global interests everywhere. So, distraction is not the right word. I mean, the U.S. has to take care of its interests in Europe, it has to take care of its interests in Asia, and it has to take care of its interests in the Middle East. And that's always been the case, and it always will be the case.
6: Russia and China recently signed a long-term agreement. So this greater show of solidarity is pretty threatening. What kind of impact do you think it might have on Taiwan?
7: Well, I mean, the the key question is, is Russia going to support China if it takes aggressive action on Taiwan? And uh, I guess we're leaning towards the answer, which is yes. And and so that is troubling. Um, On the other hand, I would say China has been much more cautious in practice on supporting Russia so uh you know it certainly will help Russia in terms of uh importing more goods from Russia during a time of sanctions it buys a lot of energy from Russia um, but it's not diplomatically supporting the attack on Ukraine so we'll, we'll have to see it's it's a little bit more complicated than is uh se- than it seems at first glance
6: so how do you think the Chinese attitude towards uh, Russia and Ukraine will affect the situation?
7: Well, I, you know, Russia gets some advantages from Chinese uh, statements of support, and it has provides Russia with some alternatives in terms of markets and so forth, markets for its energy. But at the end of the day, it won't affect uh, Russia that much. I mean, Russia intended to aggressively invade Ukraine, and, and it would have done so, I think, whether China supported it or not.
6: Well, thank you so much, Dan, uh, for your time. I've been speaking with Dan Blumenthal. He's the author of The China Nightmare. He is also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a Washington think tank in
7: Washington. Thank you so much.
4: This is Radio Taiwan
3: International.
6: Thank you for tuning in to radio taiwan international taiwan's national broadcaster we hope you enjoyed our programs you can catch all of our latest news audio and video features on our website at en.rti.org.tw again go to our website en.rti.org.tw for engaging news videos and programs about taiwan if you like to hang out on social media rti is there too our Facebook URL is Radio Taiwan International. And you can watch our engaging video features, including the weekly news magazine program Taiwan Insider, on our YouTube channel, RTI English. Again, our YouTube channel is RTI English. For those who enjoy the Twitter sphere, our handle for Taiwan Insider is at Taiwan Insider. For RTI English, it's at... Radio Taiwan underscore ENG, and if you'd like to enjoy us on your smartphone, just download our app RTI to go. That's one of the best ways to enjoy all our news, videos, and programs. That's RTI to go. If you're a shortwave listener, we have two channels in Asia. For South Asia, tune in to 6100 kilohertz from 1600 to 1700 UTC. To Southeast Asia, you can hear us on 15320 kHz from 0300 to 0400 UTC. We would love to know what you think of our programs. Email us at english at rti.org.tw. Thank you again for tuning in to Radio Taiwan International.